Good morning, church. How are we doing? Uh, man, uh, we were talking this morning in the pre-meeting, and even the speakers were like, man, even during our practice, we were like, a little low energy. And I was like, my kids barely got up off the pew. I was like, there's something. We're ending 2023 on like low gear or something. I don't know. So uh, if you, uh, I'm not Amanda Henderson. People have asked me about that from last week. Uh, no, that was a lack of coffee and a misspeak. I'm Jeff Henderson, junior as a matter of fact. Uh, and I wanted to say on a very personal note, thank you guys so much. My dad visited over the last couple of weeks. He, he's back in, he, he went home. But I just, one of the things that I love, my dad commented kind of unsolicited how much love and connection and reaching out and conversations. Uh, one of the things I love is how many, uh, what, what, did, what was I told to call them? Mature, oh, mature men, mature men. Uh, and, and just how many, instead of, it's easy to kind of withdraw into our, you know, kind of our shell a little bit, but being able to reach out and connect and talk and ask questions, it's a beautiful thing. So thank you. And I think this church is a loving church, and I love that about us. Um, and I think that's encouraging. Some of us may go, but, but Jeff, we got problems. Like, of course we do. That's why I got a job. Uh, and until Jesus comes back, we're all going to be wrestling with that. That's why we're doing this. We got to do it together. Amen. Uh, if you got a Bible, turn over to Luke chapter two, and we're going to, we're going to start there for a moment and then and jump and spend the most of our time in a different text, but it is so good to see you. How many of us had a great Christmas? Amen. How many of us begrudgingly survived and are here this morning seeking redemption? Amen. Uh, you know, that's okay too. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, this morning, I have to confess, sometimes uh, I have been I have been preaching for a while and writing sermons for a couple of decades now. Um, but sometimes you do great Bible study and you feel like you just you're trying to get the car to start when it's cold, you know, and you're like, I know there's gas in there. I I just drove, and and this sermon didn't land the way I was hoping for. Um, and so I'm hoping as we go in this morning that it was a Bible study that I've been doing and. And to me, I think it's actually very important. I think it's important for us. And sometimes it's good for all of us in the church to see so to, you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak. Um, that being in the ministry or being in leadership or being in some title, sometimes there's, we can feel like there's enough distance and those people have it all together. And that's just not true. Uh, and if you want any proof of that, come to my house for about nine minutes and you'll see, oh no, the Hendersons are very real sinful people. I mean, we're all wrestling with it. But the beautiful thing about this is, is that God knows all that and still has entrusted this unbelievable mission and this unbelievable church to us. This is plan A. Look around. There's no plan B. This is it. It's each other. I don't know what to tell you, but you better and figure it out, have communion again or something. I don't know, but this is what we got. This is the team, baby. This is team. This morning, sometimes if we're not careful, what we tend to focus our eyes on and what we see begins to define reality for us. We talked about this last week, right? Repetition can replace truth. And have you ever noticed this? Is anybody a motorcycle rider here? Anybody a rider? Okay, Eric was, and then he got married, and and the bike, and then repentance occurred, and amen. Yeah, I remember asking my wife, "Hey, babe, what do you what do you think about me getting a motorcycle?" 
She's like, what do you think about being single again? And I was like, uh, well, then a car it is. How, how about, how about an SUV? That seemed to be better. That fit. But it's wild. Have you seen those studies? And maybe you've seen the billboards that if you're a driver of a car, literally psychologically, if you are, if you don't ride motorcycles, if you aren't thinking of them, you literally can scan and they can be in your vision. But you literally, your brain does not register them in your brain. It just doesn't click. It doesn't, you don't see, you don't see them. It's wild. Because what you see isn't always what you're seeing. It's not what's just in front of you. Does that make sense? And so what you focus on and even what you prepare yourself to see, what you're thinking of when you get in the, in the driver's seat, will not just change the experience. It could take or save lives. I think the truth is the same thing is true spiritually. What you see and how you see, it can change your reality, can change your life. In fact, I'd say it can change your reality. Any, any, any fishermen in here? Fisher women, I feel like fisher people, yeah? Amen, yeah, that's right. Fisher persons, that feels wrong. That feels... Fisher people, yeah. And I, I'm not, I like fishing. My uncle's like a fisher. And I remember the first time going on to, going out into the lake and like fishing with him. And I was out in the Pacific Northwest, the Seattle area. I remember doing this. Um, and he's, he, this is one of the things he loved doing. And I remember this, this is this vision. That we would go out and we would catch like little sunfish, those tiny little perch. And so, if, and so we, but we had like this ultra light rod, like you just hooked Moby Dick, you know, it's just, and you, you're like, yes, and you pull it out and it's like a sardine. It's like bait for other fish. You're like, but it's a fun fight, right? You know what I'm saying? It's the process. It's good. But I remember being out there and we were fishing for proper fish and we we're out on the boat and, and he's like, oh, throw them over there with a the fish are. I'm like, how do you know? And he goes, here, boy. He handed me his glasses. And I was like, what are these? He's like, they're polarized. I was like, what does that mean? Polaroids? I was like, kinky. You know, like an old film. What are we talking about? And I remember putting them on. Anybody ever done this? And you put on the glasses. And you can see through the water. And you're like, it takes the reflection away. So actually what it's not doing is it's, it's not helping you just see more. It's actually helping you see less. And what happens is, is that water, and it's not perfect vision. Oftentimes you're not seeing to the bottom because it's too cloudy. But it begins to cut the reflection and you can see, and now I'm seeing these schools of fish. And I'm like, that changes the game. And it makes me wonder, as you and me are walking around this life, we're walking around Wichita, it's cold, you grab the jacket, you get on out there, you got to go to work. Oh, man, your kids need something, your roommates, your, your, we, we have people that pass away in our, our, our families. We've got to minister, love them. There's so many good and reasonable things going on in our lives. But it makes me wonder, do we see the full reality of what is going on? And I think Christmas morning is a huge example of that. And I think when you see the full picture, it transforms you. And changes you. And I think when you see differently, you live differently. You cast your lines differently. 
If you're convinced this lake's got no fish, you eventually stop throwing your line in, don't you? You ever find yourself saying that? No, there's, there's, not, really any, there's not really any open people in Wichita. No one's really seeking here. Everyone's, everyone who's seeking has already found a church. It's too religious. You ever found yourself saying that or hearing that? We got so we are a great family that on the on the on the on the, the Mount Rushmore of Wichita, the or the OGs. We've we obviously all of us know Ken and Lana. They've been around forever. They they they, they own stock. I think they have got stock options here. But another family are the Allens, which we were beneficiaries of their children when we were down in San Antonio. Whitney, their daughter, was in our ministry for years. In fact, she felt Whitney felt like she was cursed because somehow she was in my Bible talk every time we switched for years. She's like, what did I do wrong? And I'm like, I don't know, but you better pray more. I don't know, man. She's like, but you're in charge. I'm like, in charge, kind of, you know. But I think these families that have poured their lives out. Do you think you move six people into Wichita when there's no church? When there's no church there and they want to start something. Did they come in thinking, nah, no one's open here. There's no la- There's no fish in this lake. Why even cast your line? Is that the vision when they walked in? I don't think so at all. And the way you see a place, the way you see the world, the way you see the people in front of you, the way you see you and your life and the story that God is writing will transform the way you live in it. Does that make sense, family? And I think as we look in Luke chapter 2, I want to use Luke chapter 2 and then we're going to kind of jump in to seeing a little bit more of the full picture of Christmas morning. We've been studying Christmas morning and kind of this Christmas story and some of the characters around it. And you made this morning going, Jeff, Christmas is over. My Christmas tree is down. It's over, bro. Talk about New Year's. We're going to be talking about it again next week. I actually am really excited about next week. And I think that is part of the problem because if Christmas is about the tree and the presents and the, you know, little, you know, Marlon Brando godfather on your nativity scene. That's my, that was my Jesus, you know, in the nativity scene in, in Brazil, if you weren't here last week. And whatever picture has been painted, whatever vision you have of it. If it's not the real vision, a week later we turn the page and Christmas is over. It stops having the impact. But real Christmas morning has been impacting and turning the world upside down for 2,000 years. It's still at work. There's something that happened there. So let's look at this in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read this again. And we're going to pick it up in verse 8 and see something and dive in a little bit about what is happening on Christmas morning through the eyes of heaven. We all together, family? Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And it says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And if I'm going to pause here. We remember we were talking about these nobodies, probably teenagers, these kids out in the middle. They might have been old. They were certainly poor. These were nobodies. In fact, they were considered unclean spiritually and would not have been allowed inside of the temple to worship. 
They're almost certainly taking care of the, their villages or a group of sheep. They're probably not their own. They might have one or two in there that's their family. They're out there in the field doing what shepherds do. No one's thinking about them. And the angel shows up and goes, guys, you don't understand what's happening in the town of Bethlehem. An angel shows up. These are messengers that literally stand in, in the presence of God, we would see, right? We see that as he's talking with Joseph and he's talking with Mary. And as we see even Elizabeth and we see that whole conversation about John the Baptist's birth and Jesus. One of the angels is like, I stand in the presence of the Lord. Who are you? You know, I mean, these angels, man, they got some swag on them. They know what they're about. They are literally the messengers of the King of Kings, the Lord, from the throne room of heaven. And they show up to these shepherds and he goes, guys, do you understand from God's, God's own throne to your mouth in this field? The Christ, the Lord has been born to these guys who no one would listen to, no one cares about, and everyone's largely disregarded. They're doing a job that no one's not even awake to watch them do. And you get this wild contrast that you see again and again, which is there could not be a more powerful and royal, regal dignitary than an angel of the Lord coming to the least people and their community and saying, the king of kings has been born to you, and the way you're going to find him is you're going to find him because he was born and he's wrapped up just like you were when you were a baby. He's not like a king. He's not. You're not going to find him in the palace. You're not going to find him in the holy of holies. You're going to find him in a manger in this town just like you. And God starts to show you who he is. His character starts coming out. What's going on behind the scenes, the things that you and I can't see, begin to get revealed. And suddenly, verse 13, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And I want to pause there because this is the moment where we were talking about this several weeks ago. There are these verses in the Bible where God kind of just, it's almost like the curtain opens. Anybody ever, is anybody like musical theater? I feel like, Melinda, do you, do you I've, okay, there's at least two of us in here. Okay, we got a couple. I love it, man. I remember I saw, I, t- I took my wife to Lion King, like, I mean, dude, Lion King on stage is just all, like, it's epic. And the singing, and then, ah, uh, and you're just, you're like, you're, it's just awesome, man. And I'm like, I'm going to sing like that, but I, I should not try to sing like that. But have you ever noticed, I kind of like, I've always been like a treasure hunter my whole life. I like, I always look at the ground for money. Like, I think I'm going to find money. Or I'll go into used bookstores or like, you, like antique stores thinking I'm going to find that 2,000-year-old Chinese vase that no one, and I'm going to get for $3, and I'll go on the antique road show, and it'll be worth $3 million. And then the renovation at the Wichita Church building will be no problem, baby. I, I think I'm like looking for that, and I've found money occasionally, but with that, I'm kind of like on the stage. I love when you can kind of see the curtain break, and you see what's kind of going behind the scenes a little bit. And this happened at Disney. One of our good friends actually worked at Disney on the cruise line, and they would say on on, on the front of the on the front facing the, the on the the the, char- the background characters when they go and then they go back scene is a different world than what you see on the forward facing business. Disney is brilliant at this. 
at completely immersive, unbelievable customer service. So you walk in on a cruise line and they are working and they are on, they are in character. They won't break. It's awesome. They're amazing. But when I went there, one of the guys who was in the, he led worship down there in San Antonio for the last many years, but he, he was doing musical theater, got an off Broadway gig, did one of the, the uh, tour on the cruise lines for Disney. And we just baptized him the day before he left. And he's like, dude, you want to come on one? I was like, mm, yeah, that'd be great. Let's do it. And what was incredible to me was to see the discipline and the devotion and the intensity and the care and the culture of this on the front end. But if you, and, and, and you would never think, you'd think that everyone loves their jobs at Disney. They're always fired up. They're always joyful at Disney. And it always the case. Because as soon as you go behind the scenes, baby, and I went down and we had dinner with all the, the crew. And, they're, and they're, they're, no one's not, some of them just aren't even talking. It's like, you know, that, that in, the introverts come back out and they're like, they like power down. They're like, they're eating. And I'm like, but you're like Snow White. There's no birds singing. What's up here? In full garb and they're eating. You know, you're like, what's the deal? And the truth of it is, is because what's going on behind the scenes isn't always what it seems. And there's a great part of that. And then there's a not so great part of that. But what I love is being able to see, how does this work? Let's see behind the scenes. And there are these verses in the Bible where God seems to, to peel back. Maybe, maybe the curtain just, just cracks a little bit and you start to see, hold on, there's way more going on than I think. And what we see on the field is, hold on, the angels show up. One shows up and says, this is the deal, the full-blown messenger. And then what happens is it seemingly is that the sky cracks behind them and what shows up is a great army and the, of heavenly hosts. We're talking about almost certainly, we're talking about the angelic army. Now, when you start doing, you know, the mathematicians among us, when you, you know, read Revelation or you read these other places and 10,000 by 10,000, that's about the largest number the Greeks would enumerate. So that, that's basically saying it's an uncountable amount. Was there really 100 million angels? Maybe. It's not impossible, but I don't know if God needs a hundred million because one took out like the entire army in the Old Testament. You know what I'm saying? These guys are bad dudes. Like how many do you need to get the work done? But what we see is that on that night, as the sky cracks behind this announcement, is it isn't just one angel going around delivering the message. He's not the errand boy. It's not just a mailman. The, there is something, an angelic army standing at them in attention. There's something going on in heaven that morning. And what's incredible is God tells us a little bit about it. Turn with me over to Revelation 12. We all together? We are awfully quiet, which is great. And it's, you're like, oh, this is such deep, amazing stuff. Or maybe you're like, oh my goodness, get it done with, bro. I think there's an aspect to some of this. If we're not careful, a side point here is sometimes in our world right now, we've, we've kind of created an artificial distinction between teaching and preaching. And what we did is we, we've kind of gone, teachers are the kinds that are nerds and they're kind of podcast philosophers. They're people that aren't really builders and operators, not in church building business. They're really in the, the pontificating, theorizing business. And that's what it means to teach from the Bible. And then the preaching guys that aren't really that serious about theology, but they do things with people. And there's these two groups. I don't think that's what the Bible's painting as the team at all. 
And so the goal is, even in the last few weeks, is that some of us don't naturally go, oh, I'm not the teacher-y kind of person. That's totally fine. If you're the nerd, nerd out with us, that's fantastic. It isn't for everyone, I get it. But there's a certain about of this is that we want to be great students of our Lord and his words because this is the source of all wisdom. And the more we dig, and it's like a great relationship. Remember, John 8, 31 and 32, and he's, when Jesus says, no, you know, if you follow me, if you follow my words, then what? Man, one, you're going to be my follower. You'll be an actual disciple. That's really not deep teaching. If you follow, you're a follower. Amen, right? So if you follow, you're a true disciple. Then you know truth and the truth sets you free. But the problem is, is if you keep reading, Jesus goes, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Truth isn't a what, it's a who. It's a relational thing we're building here. So it's not just about facts and figures. It's about deepening our relationship with our Lord. So I want to encourage you in 2024, don't be afraid to pick up the shovel and dig a little bit more. You know, maybe your teacher hat's very small. You know, it's like one of those New Year's Eve top hats. That's fine. You don't have to be a full-blown nerd. But as we dig, sometimes what we do is we begin to see God differently. And it transforms the way we see him. And we begin to continue, not just to get older in the Lord, we get more mature. We get deeper. Does that make sense? That's why we're doing some of this. Revelation chapter 12. Let's read verse. It says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on, on his heads. It's like a wild picture. right? You're like, this is in the Bible? What is this? This is like mythology. No, we're, this is apocalyptic language. We're going to break this down a little bit here in just a moment. But in verse 3, verse 4, it says, His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, and he flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Does that sound familiar who that might be? And her child was snatched to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the desert place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Sounds like an administrator was helping with the writing of Revelation 12, doesn't it? (laughs) And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven, and the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the test, the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Imagine what happens to our church when those words become true of us. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. 
but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury or with anger, depending on your translation. Because he knows that his time is short. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and a half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from the mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away from, uh, with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the, the, dragon, um, the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, I want to take a moment and go for those of us, I don't know about you, I I grew up, I didn't grow up going to church a lot. I was seeking truth, but I didn't read the Bible a lot. Um, Never was invited to, actually, until I kind of came out. Someone said, hey, have you ever studied the Bible before? And I had to think, I'm like, I think I'd visited 20 or 24 different groups, churches. No one ever went, hey, do you want to like read the Bible together? That was like, that was, I was like, that was kind of worrisome and both convicting. I was like, nope, I should probably do that, right? Yeah, that would be good. And I remember when, but beforehand, and I was trying to read the Bible by myself in high school a little bit. I don't know if anybody else did this. I started reading the book of Revelation. Someone's like, there's like dragons in there. And I was like, oh, this will help. You start reading it and you're like, there's lambs and there's lions and there's, there's these thrones and there's people on their face and they're singing all the time. You're like, what is going on? Now there's a dragon. There's, there's, you know what I mean? It's just, this language is wild. And the truth of it is in modern America, in most modern cultures, we have a lot of apocalypse. Maybe you could, I'm trying to think of what the closest, we might call it poetry. And it's a kind of, it's a type of literary style that you see, especially in the Old Testament that's trying to paint a word picture to describe things that are ineffable. They're indescribable. God's trying to get you to imagine what is happening and what you can see. There was no CGI. You know what I'm saying? He didn't come down and go, here's the 8K version. Ready, guys? No. John's coming in. John John has this vision, and and, and God goes, write this down. One, there's there's like two or three pages of letters to different churches. And you read those, and you're like... Revelation 1, 2, and 3, I can get down with. That's clear, yeah? And then you get to Revelation 4, and you're like, skirt! Like, it, ra- it takes a radical left turn. And you're like, what's going on? And there's dead lambs, and what, what's happening here? And the truth of it is, is now God has taken him and, and peeled back the whole curtain and going, I need you to try to communicate what you're seeing so that people can get it. This is quite literally the last thing that God wanted written to the churches. It's like, I got to leave you with what is to come. Does that make sense? With that comes a little bit of caution. Sometimes we look at details and we want to find, it's like a good analogy. Sometimes if we try to overextend an analogy and make every part of the vision have a meaning, what will happen is you can find yourself trying to apply it or over apply it in ways. Maybe you've been a part of churches charismatic or you know or or talk about the end times a lot we can get obsessed with this jesus is very clear the father did not let the son know the times and places the chance of you and me knowing are very unlikely 
Trying to predict the future with this is difficult. But God is absolutely trying to get you and me in our head and our hearts to see, to kind of put the spiritual polarized glasses on and see through the water a little bit and see that there is something going on and there's a lot of things that we learn about God, that we learn about you and me, and we learn about our mission when we see it with more clarity. Does that make sense? Kind of. At least Sharisa, it makes sense to Sharisa. Her and I will talk. Does all that make sense, family? I don't want to lose this all in any deep waters. What we see, though, is John's describing that this picture that he's painting, if you can, if you can see it, is that there's this incredible woman and she's got this crown and glory and the stars and she's about to have a baby. And the dragon, Satan, the devil, that's been leading the whole world astray. What's his strategy? Kill the baby before it really begins. Snuff out the revolution before this thing gets traction. And as you're reading this, if you notice, we're talking about murder, infanticide, not once but twice. The devil is trying to kill the baby as it is born when it's young. And that's honestly what lions do when they go out and they hunt. Because mom, when she's giving birth, can almost immediately give birth and begin to run. Almost no babies can. They can go very quickly, but that's an incredibly vulnerable moment for both mom and child. That's an easy dinner and an even easier enemy to kill. Does that make sense? And the way that Satan, there's no... This isn't a reenactment of the Civil War. We're not playing war here. And when everything's done, we all get up and we go to lunch and we talk about how fun that was. Satan's going, no, 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 I'm going after the child. I'm going after Jesus. The audacity. Could you imagine how, what would it, what would it take you to try the, to kill the child of a ruler? That you've been in the presence of God himself and you know God's power. This is the Christ. You know what's at stake and you know the authority. You know the power and you're still going after him. And he's trying to kill them before it starts. And he's saying that that as this happens, no, God intervenes and she's swept away into the wilderness, into the desert. If you read your Old Testament, what, what country is often referred to as the desert or the wilderness? It's Egypt. That's exactly where they go. And if you've been reading, if you've read Exodus or Deuteronomy, or you start looking back, you go, I'm going to the promised land of Joshua. Now, all of these, we start to see these threads that start to get pulled through. And if you're a Jew hearing about this, this language resonates. Does that make sense? And what happens in this picture, in this dragon trying to devour, is that actually, you know, God takes, swoops this woman out and takes the child, and, and then something begins to happen and unfold. There's a war. Where's the war? It's in heaven. And I don't know about you, there's not a, if I'm not careful, what I'll think about this is that, oh, it's almost like God will make everyone in his presence obey him. Now we know at the end of times, all knees are going to bow, period. There will come a time when God goes, enough, enough. Judgment day is upon us, get here. In fact, we know from reading that hell itself was never created for you and me. It was created, we find in Revelation, for Satan and his angels. It was never a place designed for you and me. Oh, why would God create such a terrible place of torment? It wasn't for you. But what's wild is as this war begins, 
Who is it between? We see Michael, the lead dude. Could you imagine if you're an angel training for, you, you are as, as equipped and trained for battle as ever. But there's like no fights going on in heaven, right? And finally God goes, it's game time. And you're like, oh yes, let's get after it. It's like if you were a football player, man, you're, you're, you can practice till the cows come home when it's tournament time, baby. My, my University of Washington plays Texas tomorrow. Well, yeah, they're going to New Orleans. And I'm like, yeah, you can, yeah, yeah, saw them off. You guys are going down. But I'm like, but man, I was like, I, I had, I had friends that played football and we would go and watch the games and when it was game time and you're ready to show up, the energy and camaraderie, it's crazy. People fight. The fans would fight other fans going to the game. I'm like, you guys have lost your mind. It's just a game. And I think, man, we do that for sports and you can imagine the angels and they go, what's going on? And you see Michael and his angels rise up and then Satan and his angels. Sometimes we go, no, 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 I see through the lies of Satan. Jeff, I don't need someone's help. I don't need uh, encouragement. Hebrews 3, encourage my heart. And sinful's deceitfulness. Oh, sin doesn't deceive me, bro. Angels in the presence of God himself got led astray by Satan. This guy is phenomenal at his job. And he's been doing it way longer than you and I have been around. And this war goes down. And Satan gets his house clean. And again, we learn some more details. Who is not involved in the fight? Jesus, the spirit, rose Jesus from the dead. Plenty of power there. He's not mentioned at all. The father, does it seem like he even gets off the throne? No, it's the angels. And sometimes in our spiritual battle, if we're not careful, what we begin to think is that in the the grand scheme of the war and the power, it's Jesus versus Satan. No, it isn't. And that, oh man, can Jesus overcome the power of Satan? Are you kidding me? No, Jesus is a baby. He's like, I'll let the angels handle the light work. Not one father, son, or spirit even show up to the fight. So as we walk in Jesus, we've got the spirit that raises the, that God from the dead. You and me think that Satan's got anything that can touch us if we walk in him. There is nothing. Not to mention that you and I even says that ministering spirits, angels are sent to oversee us. I have no idea what that means. But as I start to put these glasses on, I think if we see behind through the water a little, we put our, our polarized glasses on, it seems like there is a continued spiritual war and the angels are still going to work. And even if they don't, their creator is living in you and me. I think what it done is it begins to peel back the layers and we begin to learn more about the facts of God and the facts of this war. And the war didn't end when Satan was thrown out of heaven, did it? What was Satan's reaction? He got angry. The only emo- thing that we see describe the emotion of Satan ever is anger. In fact, when we see people that are in 
in hell, we see that they're described, or Hades in the waiting place, as weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're angry. The people in hell are sad and angry. So proud, so entitled, so mistreated, so misunderstood that hell itself can't break their anger. Just like Satan. And I think that some of us, I don't think have a ample appreciation and respect for what kind of appropriate response we should have to anger. In our own anger, oh, I'm indignant because of the way I was hurt. Are you? Are you indignant or are you just angry like Satan? We better get very serious and very real about it. Now, emotions are amoral. They're not good or bad. Our reaction to them can be. We better get very, very clear about what emotional path Satan is on and where he wants you to go. These are just facts we begin to pull out. Does all this make sense? I kind of feel like it's like a Scooby-Doo puzzle and there's like 10 pieces, you know? There's not a lot of pieces. Maybe maybe, maybe a, you know, Revelation is like a 100-piece puzzle or something. But we're kind of, we're like, oh, that's Scooby-Doo's nose. Okay, I can, we start to see these facts. They start to come alive. The last thing we see though is not only is he enraged, what does Satan go off and do? He's making war, not made war. Making now against not just everyone. No, no, no. Actually, at the end of Revelation 12, what it says in verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman, went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, brothers and sisters of Jesus. Who were they? Who were my mother and my brothers and my sisters, Jesus would say? Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Friends, I got really bad news this morning. Sometimes we think that Satan has his time and energy and effort spread around the seven or eight, no, what, almost eight billion people on earth. That's really not what he needs to do. The vast majority of people no longer need to be targeted. If you want to follow Jesus, you put on a, you don't just put on a robe you put on a white robe with a bullseye on your back. Amen. Satan goes, I'm coming for you. People who get out of the slavery want to rescue and, 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 and free other slaves. You become an enemy. That also tells us so much about what stake and what kind of power you have in this battle. And the ability and the things that you can do and change when one, you're aware there is a battle and two, you have the stomach to fight. I was telling you guys, I want to end this, uh, this a, a few weeks ago. My wife and I watched that series, Band of Brothers. Yeah. And I will say, it's all awesome, except I think it's the second to the last scene. Just like skip over the first 10 minutes. There's like this weird impure scene. So if you're going to watch it, there's one warning. That's it. Everything else is, I mean, in terms of, you know, impurity, sexuality and stuff, it's clean as a whistle historically about as accurate as it gets and for me sometimes that's very that's inspiring to see heroism and the decisions and the sacrifice of other people it's, it helps me sometimes to go man sometimes i don't quite get everything the way they did and the decisions they made i don't know it's inspiring to me maybe that's inspiring to you that's that's helped me but in 1940 
kind of leading up to us getting involved in World War II, Hitler started to rise to power and Germany started to really make moves. Started to bomb places like Holland and other places. They're, they had a, their Luftwaffe, their Air Force. It's formidable. It's unbelievable. They're bombing and shelling cities. Roosevelt makes the f- famous 50,000 airplanes declaration in 1940, end of 1940, when we had 1,200 airplanes. And he says, in the next year, we are going to construct 50,000 airplanes, which was laughable because they had 1,200. And what we would see is that in about, what, two years later, we wouldn't have 50, we would have 100,000 airplanes that were functional. We had the first ever, you know, the 101st Airborne, which is what the Band of Brothers is all about. And all of this begins to happen because they see that we start to see what's happening with with the the rise of Germany and the war, and the people are and, and innocents are being killed and entire countries are being wiped off the map as they, as, as they just invade and take them over. But what's, in order to do that, the entire country took the battle personally. You guys remember Rosie the Riveter? You know, they got, that chick, she's like jacked, dude. She's got, you know, she's got the headband, the whole thing. She's like, and it wasn't just the young men that were on the front lines firing the bullets, everybody. It was like, man, we, people were bringing medals from home. They were foreign. I mean, women were, were, were working. And this was the time when you kind of had that bread breadwinner, homemaker kind of mentality. So we're showing up to work on in factory plants and ammunition lines. The whole, it wasn't just the people shooting the guns that were in the battle. The whole country, it was our fight. We will win together. And the government, and all, I think, and I think that was a distinct difference, Yeah. And as I talk even with grandparents or people that were alive during that period, they go, it was a different, it felt different. The fight against evil was palpable. And it was everyone's battle. We took it personal. What would happen over the, and about a year later when we saw um, the headlines of Pearl Harbor was bombed. And then we just, there was no longer any reluctance. We, we were shoved into war. And what they had, and they had planned the, the invasion of Normandy. And Normandy beaches around the French Peninsula. What happened is, is there was something like, I mean, hundreds of miles of coastline that the created these concrete barriers and guns. They had created a wall that felt impenetrable. And Normandy, and the day we invaded, there was like what seventeen hundred boats that showed up that were constructed. 133,000 U.S. troops. There was about another 40 or 45,000 from other countries that were involved. They show up to do the impossible. And the reason why the location of Normandy was chosen is because it was the least likely to be attacked, the least expected. It wasn't the weakest point. There was no port. It wasn't easily accessible. And the way they did it is they constructed a mobile port to get there. People were invested. Young men enlisted. It wasn't uncommon to hear stories when 10 or so or 15 young men in a small town would go and enlist. And two or three that could not enlist because of medical reasons would kill themselves because they couldn't go to war. People were invested. It was, it was personal. And, and before 
that they would they would storm Normandy, where they would send the airborne over to begin to cut off the supply lines on the backside, so that when they invaded, when they met, they were able to give a proper push and get on land. And it was it was the Hail Mary. And what's happening Christmas morning is Invasion Day on earth for you and me. The war that's been declared that happened on earth, or happened in heaven, that now is happening here. Jesus was sent. The, the king of kings was brought down. The king on the throne room of heaven did what a perfect, inapproachable king did. He humbled himself. Who could humble the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? He humbled himself, right? That's what Paul is writing about in Philippians, that he, he made himself nothing. That this, we start to see God's character come out and we start to see who he is and what he will do to rescue you and me. He taught the parable of the lost sheep. He was not kidding around. And what happened on Christmas morning was D-Day. It was invasion day. And while Satan would be actively at war with you and me and anyone who would try to hold to Jesus. And how many friends do we all know in this room that after they became disciples, Satan doubled down and attacked them and eventually won and they left God and they left their faith. It is heartbreaking to see. It's heartbreaking to see. I think one of the best things Satan has ever done is, is proliferate the false doctrine of once saved, always saved. I think it's a mess. You can't read a single page of the Bible and get that. I don't understand the doctrine. But Satan is actively warring. But it makes us ask a few questions. And I want to leave you with a couple to think about. These are questions I've been thinking about. One of the questions is, what does this tell you about God? As we've gone through this Christmas story, what have you learned about God and his character? And as I look at this this morning, is that, I mean, I love, I don't know about you, I kind of love the Christmas cards and it's a time of peace, you know, and you see the baby Jesus and the manger. I kind of like that fiction. I like that. I like the peaceful, uh, peace, peace, uh, until you read like Jeremiah was peace, peace, where there is no peace. And you're like, oh man, like Prince of Peace isn't exactly meaning what we think it means. He's talking about bringing peace on earth man and God and between one another and, and, and it's a war to do that Satan's got his hands around our brothers and sisters and our neighbors necks and for some of us in here he's got them around our own that this is a war but what we see is and we learn this and it jumps off the pages God is so much more powerful than Satan he doesn't even have to get involved with the fight at least in heaven son to earth to come down to personally get you and me he's not just serving and doing the duty and just beating and winning the war no he's coming down to connect to you and me personally he sends his son so that you and me can see and we can we can connect that he's like you and me he's fighting and dying for the relationship not just the overall victory it's personal is it personal to you still I think about the battle and I think about, it kind of gives us this check on the moment. 
And I think the second question is that ask us is not just what do we learn about God, but what do we learn about our part in the mission? And I think about this is that something radically different happened after World War II and we get into the Vietnam War era where the attitude of the country changed about warfare. And while the whole communism thing and Cold War and fighting the Cold War was a little bit more, I don't know, was it a little bit more ideological? Was it a little more in our head? Massively violent. Obviously, the Soviet Union, us as a church, we, we support Eurasian missions, man. I and mean, we've seen brothers and sisters that have come over that have witnessed what's happened after Soviet Union. We've seen that and feel it. It had massive impact. But the attitude changed. And what actually ended up happening is these soldiers that were sent to Vietnam and Southeast Asia were sent out as heroes, but were brought back and welcomed back as villains. Because we made the decision and we condemned And there was a lot of great and I think reasonable reasons for that. But what ended up happening was is these same people that went out and fought and saw horrific things came back and were met on the coastline and vilified. And were now the enemies. And what we know actually now for mental health, especially with Veterans Affairs, has been an enormous amount of work, is that yes, the experiences those soldiers have faced are massively impactful, but one of the most impactful things on the recovery, especially preventing and reducing, diminishing PTSD impacts long-term, is the community around them and they were received in their response to them. Does that make sense? So when you're bought back, you're not just shot with a physical gun, you're shot emotionally and psychologically again. There's this... And so it ends up happening, but the whole country has shifted, and the battle isn't personal. And in fact, we've lost our stomach for war altogether. Church, have we lost our stomach for the spiritual war? Do we kind of vilify people who are a little bit too excited about sharing their faith and studying the Bible with a friend? Is evangelism a little bit of a four-letter word? And what are we doing here? And that's old school. That's old school ICOC. That's cult language. What are we doing? No, I need to feel great about being at church. And I go, no, Wichita Church, we're not just going to be at church for ourselves. We're not just going to sit here and go, I love these people. Build the high walls. We're not preppers. This isn't the zombie apocalypse. We're not just defending what we have. This church isn't just for you and me sitting in these pews or standing and looking online. It's for the empty chairs. And this message and this, this battle, this Jesus who jumped behind enemy lines is still jumping and dying for you and me. But my question is, will you? Have we just lost our stomach for the war? Jeff, I just don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to see friends leave. I don't want to cry again. I don't want to do it. And man, I look at you and I go, you know how many of those tears I've cried? Do you know how many Jesus has cried? And how many he wept before you and me were found? Friends, we're a part of something beautiful and supernatural. And if we put our glasses on, I think we start to see that these hurts that you and I can be enslaved and entangled by become a part of a larger war. And there's something worth fighting for. There's something worth being hurt for. There's something worth being so close to another brother. Yeah, he's going to step on my toes. Yeah, it's going to hurt. We're going to talk through it because we're not just friends. We're not members of the same organization. We're in a foxhole together. It's a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And we've got a message of salvation, friends. This isn't just about being another church. 
The world doesn't need another one. The world needs disciples. But if you follow God's commandments and you hold on to the testimony of Jesus' blood, friends, you are signing up for war. And the last thing is, I think the last third question that it makes me ask myself and I think about isn't just what do I learn about God and his character? What do I learn about my part of the mission? It's what do I learn about me? And I read this story. This is an astronomical amount of effort to save someone like me. Isn't it? You ever look at yourself and go, I'm not worth dying for. I'm not worth sacrificing for. I'm not worth giving thousands or tens of thousands or the millions of dollars of missions to, to send someone overseas to find. I, I'm just not worth that much. Anybody ever felt that? I know I have. And I think Jesus flat out goes, no, I disagree with you. And, not, and that's, not a, that's not on the basis of opinion. He created us. He's the only one that factually knows our value, period. And he goes, no, not only are you worth it, friends, you're worth it. You're worth dying for. You're worth diving behind enemy lines. You're worth sacrificing. You're worth the bloodshed, the crucifixion, the rejection. The I so appreciate Gary's, Gary's honesty at Community Today. And I think relate to that and the rejection and maybe more than the physical pain is the long-lasting isolation and the psychological pain maybe the spiritual pain of what it did to him and his father i there's so much i don't see and god goes no no bro you are worth it and the story of christmas morning goes no it isn't just peace peace where there is no peace in the middle of of, of a government that is corrupt and murderous murdered two of his sons-in-law, his wife, and two of his own sons. This is the guy that's governing the area Jesus was born into. And he would swipe, says all these stars out of the sky. They would come hunting and kill a generation of young Jewish boys to try to kill Jesus. Satan knows the impact of one soul, one life that will follow Jesus. He knows it. And you're worth it, friends. Do you see it? Sometimes we treat ourselves like trash because you just don't see what God thinks about you. Stop trusting the thing you're thinking and start trusting the words of your creator. And that, to me, helps me to both be humble and powerfully secure. But it also changes how I approach my life and the courage I live with. And I'll end with this. I'll really end with this. As you can tell, I haven't really been impacted by my Bible study much lately. The last couple of years, and we're going to be, I'll share more about this in, in, the, in the, probably the first quarter of the next year. The last year was brutally hard for us. And there is a good sense of being like Disney where you put on the joyful face. Because if your minister comes and looks like Eeyore every Sunday, you're like, Maybe, maybe we should get a different minister. Like we, you know, we need someone that's going to come and show. We want vulnerability and honesty and authenticity, but not too much. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know what I mean? So there's, and we all need some of that. And we actually all need to be givers despite the fact we don't feel like giving, which I appreciated the, the point that Gary made there. There's a good point about that. But I remember this moment and thinking about the value of us personally, but also the value of the people who aren't yet sitting in here. Because I don't know about sometimes for you and me, 
I can get trapped in just being a coward. I just let my fear run the show. And I remember when I was a little kid and I was getting beat up. Um, that's what nerds do. They used to. Now they're cool and on YouTube and making millions of dollars when they're nine. Not so much when I was, I was losing my bikes to the group of like little, you know, biker gang kids. But I remembered it and I must have been in second grade and first, second grade. Uh, I was probably Millie's age now that I think about it and got picked on for quite a bit, oh, quite a bit because short, fat and smart are not a great combination. They're just made for hobbits. They're not great in real life, human <laughs> elementary schools. So I'm going, and what is the brilliant educational policy that Washington state enacts for the smart kids since they couldn't afford like a GT or whatever program, what do they do? They stick the smart first graders in with the average and dumb second graders. And anybody who's been alive for like 12 minutes goes, that's a bad idea. I mean, I've read Lord of the Flies. That's not going to go well. You know what I mean? And it didn't. And so I still remember three kids. To this day, I remember them. And every day, like at elementary, like in the recess time, at lunch, and coming home from school, I got by these three kids and got beat up. I know. It was just tragic. And what was wild is that I had actually been training for about two years with my dad in martial arts. I'd won tournaments, national tournaments. I had practiced fighting a long time. I remember having dreams where I, I, and in my dreams, I was frozen and I was getting beat up and I wanted to fight and I knew I could and I knew I knew how, but I literally just did not, I couldn't break free of the fear. I remember that. I remember talking to my dad and this would have been in, in our school. They have, a, they have a zero tolerance policy for fighting. Brilliant, right? So, so literally as the, you know, in recess, you know, you got the teacher coming up and going, you three kids jumping that kid, you guys get five days detention. Hey, you kid get up and dry your, the blood off and you're in five days detention as well. No one gets to be involved with the fight around here. That's justice, right? Yeah. We're like, this is ridiculous. And I think I, I missed, I must have 50 or sorry, 20. No, it had to be more 40 days of recess, probably eight weeks or something just getting destroyed. I see you next week. I mean, I knew where I was going to be during, you know, it was just, it was ridiculous. And one day my dad tried to, he went in and talked with it and, you know, with all the the staff, he talked, even we had a parent teacher conference and my dad, where the straw hit is because the dads came in and talked parents, mostly dads. And the dad of the ringleader started cussing and acting. He's like, well, yeah, if your kid wasn't such a burn and I'll, and why don't you and I go outside and I'll, you know, you're like the expletives here. You're like, that's PG 13 there on a, parent-teacher conference, and my dad went, oh, there's, there's, no, no, there's no more negotiating because this kid has learned from his dad that the only language that works is violence. Like, that's it. And my dad will swear to this day he didn't say this, and I remember this clear as day. I wouldn't have done it without it. My dad told me when I went to school that next week, he goes, son, you will have a fight today. Speak more, Father. You know, you know. You know. Uh, and he goes, you're going to fight them or you will run from them and come home and fight me. Yeah. And the only, and the, and as any reasonable man can, and my dad, I mean, you guys met my dad. My dad's, you know, he's an old dude now. When he was in the military, training special forces, the whole deal, and the little kids would go, my dad can, you know, beat up your dad. I'm like, No. 
no, my dad will kill your dad. No one will find the body. Like, no, bro, like, get out of here. So for me, I was very, it was very clear. The only one I feared more than anyone else was my dad. And the idea of my dad fighting me and not fighting for me, I was like, okay, we're good. That, that was enough. And I'll be honest, it was about the only thing. And that day when those three kids and they grabbed a fourth came at me, the only thing I can remember my dad saying is when a bunch of kids are trying to you know, gang up on you, try to grab the biggest one and take the shot at him or whoever one is first. Make an example at them because they, they don't want to beat you up. They want an easy fight. They don't want to fight at all. And I went, oh, snap. Like that's, okay, here we go. And the first kid, poor, poor Jeremy. <laughs> they rallied this young kid because I think they were beating on him and he probably was like, wanted to, you know, stop catching a beating and became whatever. And he came at me and I remember front kick, bang, right to his gut doubled over and that was the last time that those three had ever stuck they picked on me they started picking on him now and left me alone and they're cowards and they found me and picked on me because i was one too and i learned a really intense lesson that day because it's not a matter of getting rid of your fear it's a matter of choosing very carefully who you fear and in this war God wrote the end of it, and he wins. So whatever is in your life, whatever hurts, whatever excuses, whatever blame, whatever, whatever trauma, whatever sin you've committed, whatever secrets are in your life, whatever in this outside, in your family, in your mind, in, in, on the internet with some other person, let nothing stand in the way from you being on his side. Let nothing. Because you are worth it. And it's not, are you just worth it to be saved you get to be a part of the saving, friends. But do not let fear be Lord as you step into the next year. Make a decision. Friends, I want to encourage us. It has been an unbelievable gift to be here at the Wichita Church. We love it. Some people are like, really? You love it? We do. I was in line last night and someone was like, why? You know, where'd you come from? Sao Paulo? Brazil? Yeah. Wichita? Yeah. I think what he say is he's like, you poor soul or something. He was also like, what are you talking about? I was like, man, 25 minutes is traffic, baby. I'm blessed. I'm in the king. I think I'm dying on to heaven. This is fantastic. But I think when you're in a place long enough, sometimes you, you forget to see how great it is. And I'll encourage you. This church is a great church. But it's time to break off some of the fear, some of the inward looking, and to get our head up and go, friends, we're in a mission. There's a battle and it's worth fighting. I'm going to ask us all to stand. I'm going to end our service here with a word of prayer. I know we were going to have a song, but I've gone too long. And I'm going to ask us all to stand and I'll dismiss us with a, with a prayer. Amen. And we'll have a great time of fellowship and pray. Holy God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here before you. Thank you for what you have shown and revealed in your scriptures, Father, which is that in Revelation uh, we, we're, you're, you're peeling back the curtain a bit and showing us what you've been doing and what you are doing. And God, I pray that we are amazed, that we are in awe, but we have a, a as a Proverbs one talk about a, well, the fear that leads to wisdom. God, that the, the wisest thing we can do is to follow you as our king, God, that you win, that you win souls, you've won us, that you, you're winning the world, you are, you're fighting back, that you are not letting Satan take the victory even though in moments it can feel that way. 
And Father, I pray that we do not get overcome by fear, that we are not overcome by sadness. We have these moments, and it does, it does hurt, and as Peter says, these, these light and momentary troubles that honestly, Father, sometimes feel, feel long-standing and overwhelming, God, but to you they fit in the palm of your hands. And that there will be one day that we will see you face to face on the other side of the curtain and we will, in the blink of an eye, be changed. That we will forget the pain and the suffering. But God, when our heart stops beating, the only thing that will matter is if we made it and if we took anybody else with us. Father, help us to understand that this war is real. There's a war for our own souls because they matter that much. That we are in a battle because other souls to you matter that much. Help them to matter to us. Help them to see with help us to see with your eyes and to fight with the strength of your arms. Continue to re, just continue to resurrect and revive our souls, Father. Help us to see it. Give us the courage and the vision again. We love you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for a great 2023. And we pray as we get into 2024 that, that and we do believe, Father, that our greatest days are ahead of us and that greater things are to come. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, you are dismissed. Have a happy and safe new year.